yeah, Andy, I got to see Keith Carradine's package. Yes. And we watched that that late Sam Fuller movie, Street of No Return. Oh, yeah. I will just put my vote in the hat. Like, you got to check it out. Marsh was right. That thing is so bizarre. Uh, yeah, an absolute must see. Wait, 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 wait. The movie, right? Not just Keith Carradine's package you're talking about, right? Oh, no, I'm talking about Keith Carradine's package. <laughs> you fucker. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it no, was a very nice treat. Yeah. Very nice penis. <laughs> Movie's pretty good, too. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, well, I'm trying to treat this guy's starting to get on my nerves. You want to crown him? It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to the Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me is Ryan Saunders and Andrew Stasulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a theme for the week. And the other two hosts program a double feature in response to that theme. And we come on here and we have it out, as we've done uh, 64 times and about to be 65. It's episode 65, Tales from the Hood. And recently I've had the pleasure of seeing uh, some, some classic 90s films on the big screen, I saw Menace to Society. I saw Michael Schultz's Living Large. Uh, and I've just been sort of, you know, in that mood recently. So I asked you guys to bring me Tales from the Hood, whatever that means. I mean, we we kind of defined it as, you know, a sort of black urban perspective or subject matter, but didn't really give them any specifics otherwise, because I think... Uh, A hood film can come from any era, any place, you know, really. And you gave me some some classic bangers, and I'm very happy about it. So why don't we just just get into them, and we'll start with uh, the earlier film. Ryan, tell us what you brought to the table. I feel like this topic was a long time coming. I know how much... Uh, you love hood films, how much we all do, and it's been a, a subject of discovery for all of us, I think, over the years. And for anyone who is a fan of hood films, it sometimes can feel like a discovery simply because a lot of these films, though they had wide releases at the time and may have been widely seen, they, some of them fall through the cracks and some of them are are harder to come by and they're not a part of the the regular rotations of sorts. And I mean, that is self-evident by the fact that when I was growing up, I really didn't see many of them at all. I I didn't have like a big familiarity when I was in high school with hood films. It was not something that people in my own friend group were watching and experiencing. And I feel like a lot of the ones I've seen, um, at least initially, were introduced to me by Marsh. And I feel like a lot of my fondest, you know, just like hanging out, watching movie memories come from sitting on your back porch and having you program some hood films, things we haven't seen before, or you just encouraging me to check some stuff out. And so when you pick the theme this week, my first thought was, okay, well, 
why don't I return the favor? Why don't I try and find something that you haven't seen before? And I was scouring the web and I, I did find a lot of stuff, but my mind kept going back to a film that you had really beautifully recommended to me uh, many months ago. I, it was sometime last year, I think, when, when you had seen it. And the way you had described it to me, the two-lane blacktop of the hood cycle, I mean, that's speaking my language. Two-lane blacktop is my go-to answer of, like, if you want to know what my favorite movie is, I usually just point at that one. So the idea of any film kind of, you know, relating to it at all, I'm I'm hooked. I want to know more about it. So... I, I took your lead as I, I as I like to do when it comes to hood films, and I decided to program the 1995 film New Jersey Drive, directed by Nick Gomez and produced by Spike Lee. The film takes place, as the title suggests, in the state of New Jersey, in Newark, which at this point, according to the mainstream news media, was the car theft capital of the world and that's who we're following we're following a group of young men who are stealing cars and going on joy rides late at night and sometimes during the day around the streets of newark this leads to naturally a extreme degree of tension between them and the local police the police who are using this assortment of car thefts as a means to essentially militarize themselves as they typically do and gun down black teenagers and I mean, that's sort of, you know, that's the basis of the film, right? But in terms of the experience of this film, it, it's less so about the plot of the character of Jason and his friends as they're stealing cars, but more about the way it feels when they do have those moments of peace on the road. It's sort of a road movie in a really tight confines of, of a city, you know? It really does feel like a cross-country road trip, but it is all within the city of Newark. Um, funny enough, the film was shot primarily in Brooklyn, in, in New York, um, because they weren't allowed to shoot in Newark itself, but I still think that the film brings with it a very distinct visual sheen that makes it feel as if it does take place um, somewhere outside of the typical New York set dramas of the 90s. And this film, when I describe it as as being something that's primarily focusing on the vibes of how it feels and that freedom of the road. It, 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 that's the thing that I walked away from really understanding, Marsh, when you were saying that it, it kind of feels like two-lane blacktop. The actual car thefts don't feel like major events, but moments of peace and pause between these dreadful and brutalizing experiences with the local law enforcement. It feels as though they're hiding around every corner in this film, and if you stand still for one moment and share a moment with your friends you are in danger when they feel safe in this film is when they have a car when they're behind the wheel when they're cruising at night with the top down and enjoying the the, the early winter air um, in New Jersey so I I'm really excited to talk about it I was I was really moved by the film I think it's pretty unique also when considering its place in the hood cycle for the way it's sort of arranged and directed and just the, the focus of it so yeah that's new jersey drive from 1995 thank you very much andy why don't you tell us about what you brought well my choice was easy for me when i discovered that ryan had never seen it so really i sort of programmed this film with the knowledge marsh that you had seen it before but really i was sort of you know 
this one was for Ryan, you know, uh, a little knowing, higher learning for our guy. Yeah. Knowing that he hadn't seen this particular <laughs> film, it made my decision. Like it's one of the quickest choices I've, I've ever made for this podcast. Um, so the film that I chose is, is a film that, you know, I, I think had a, had a really sort of huge, moment you know when it came out this was a movie that that when it was sort of released or or you know going through a series of releases because it had a a sort of um you know interesting um arrival i think on 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 people's uh radar uh it was mm-hmm. a a sort of you know, great example of guerrilla marketing, which which has some very interesting um, elements to it, which we can get into later. But it's a film that that I think would have also fit very well uh, in a previous episode we had done on hybrid cinema. Uh, the film that I chose is from 2011, and it is directed by Damon Russell. The film is Snow on the bluff now for those who don't know snow on the bluff is a i mean calling it a mockumentary doesn't really do this film uh i think doesn't give the film the respect it it deserves because it really is a a a a film that i think leans much more heavily on the side of a, a documentary with some scripted moments uh, and even though it is directed by Damon Russell, the film really is the brainchild of the co-writer and star of the film, Curtis Snow. This is a man who grew up on the mean streets of Atlanta. And uh, in interviews with him, I had discovered that the genesis for the project was uh, that he had begun, you know, through his experiences of just life in this very, very, very rough uh, very violent area of Atlanta, he began just filming uh, things that he was encountering uh, in life. Um, you know, they would film ambulances, they would film police chases, they would film fights, they would also just film smaller moments of, of life that they all sort of uh, experienced together. And he started thinking about this a little bit more and then eventually someone said to him you know hey man you you kind of have something going on here and so uh it's a little bit murky as to sort of how he connected with Damon Russell uh but Damon Russell was a guy who you know had experience working at this point mostly in reality television the first 48 which uh was a big hit with me and Jerry back in the day yeah the first 48 some some MTV stuff some show called made from from back in the day you know the 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 early days of reality TV and uh, and so they got together and they decided that they were going to combine basically like his raw real footage with some scripted elements that they would come up with on the fly but but really uh, the film is kind of then shaped into this found footage artifact as if you know, like the Blair Witch Project meets The Wire, you know, you found this tape, uh, you know, on the streets of Atlanta, and it's it's the day-to-day trials and tribulations of Curtis Snow uh, as he goes about selling drugs, robbing other drug dealers, 
raising his child, hanging out with his friends, and just just trying to sort of survive life in the bluff, the 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 area of Atlanta that he's from. It's really a remarkable film. I mean, generally, I have a, a, a distaste for most found footage style cinema. I think it's it's something that I can never really truly connect with. Uh, but I have to say, for me, you know, if you do want to consider this, you know, a part of that sort of found footage subgenre, I think it is maybe the 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 best and has the most. Uh, you know, almost Bazinian uh, realism that you can find in one of these. And that's partly because a lot of this stuff actually does happen and did happen. And still to this day, there's a lot of debate about what was scripted and what was unscripted. And they've even said in interviews that, you know, people have come to them and been so convinced that that certain sequences were faked and they said those ones were real. And other scenes that people felt were real were actually fake. So the, the movie is really, I think, a, a, a brilliant bit of movie magic in that regard. And that's sort of putting it lightly when you consider the subject matter. I mean, it is a very intense film. It was a very controversial film when it was first released. Um, but it, it, it developed this huge cult following. And it's one that I think is is very, very well deserved. And of course, as I mentioned, knowing Ryan hadn't seen it, I, you know, just instantly threw this one down, knowing that he simply could not exist one more week without having experienced snow <laughs> on the bluff. So I'm super pumped to talk about this film today with both of you guys. Thank you very much, Andy. Uh, well, as you both mentioned, uh, I've seen these films before, but I, I like them a lot. So I was uh, quite happy to revisit them. And uh, I do want to sort of like uh, hype myself up here a little bit because I have a, a personal connection to the journey that Snow on the Bluff took in 2011. Uh, I was volunteering at the Chicago Underground Film Festival and the first thing they had me do was uh, they gave me like a burned DVD of Snow on the Bluff. Oh, and they were yeah. like, we're pretty sure this is like a masterpiece. But can you just like make sure <laughs> that it's good, you know, that we're not just like, <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever. Yes. And and I took it home and I put on the burned Snow on the Bluff. And it's I the was best like, way to see it. Too, it was amazing. Way. Yeah, I'd never, I did, you know, it wasn't out. I'd never heard of it. And I, I think it had played Slam Dance and, and maybe a few other places. Uh, and it went on to win the best feature at the Chicago Underground Film Festival. So I like to think that, yeah, uh, I confirmed, yes, great movie, program it, you know. Uh, and I, I feel the same way revisiting it, gosh, 11 years later. So uh, I feel like I was in on the ground floor a little bit uh, on it. So I definitely have a, you know, a warm spot in my heart for a, yeah. a very brutal and depressing movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That rocks, though. That's that's a great feeling. I mean, that's always so much of the fun. Programming a film, working for film festivals is when one like that does sort of 
come down to you and it's like what are we going to do with this thing and then yeah it i mean yeah. well question here yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean yeah i mean and, and really like that that's what this film was like in 2011 it was just people like wide-eyed coming up to you and asking like have you seen snow on the bluff have you heard about this movie? it's like i mean this movie was was huge for a movie that basically existed only in like underground film festivals burn dvds and i guess it's it's one of its other claims to fame was that it was one of like the first films on netflix's at the time new instant streaming platform like that's really where this film then got much more i think kind of mainstream eyes on it if if you can put it that way Mm -hmm. but yeah i think one of the things that really struck me about it and thinking back on what you were saying andy I'm also not a huge found footage fan. Um, I've encountered a lot of it just because I like horror films so much. So I've naturally just seen a lot of found footage horror films. But I think one of the reasons I have a hard time with them is because just allowing yourself to give in to the the fake reality of it all, it, I, it's never fully believable for me. It, it's always the moments that signal like how they were arranging everything, the excuses they make up for the camera still rolling in moments of crisis never registers as, as true for me. And Except I think in that, Halloween Resurrection. Well, sure. <laughs> well, that's, a, yeah, that's a little bit different. Yes, but of course, of course, absolutely. But I think that the thing that really struck me about Snow on the Bluff is that fact that even now, watching this film today, the tools they utilize to make it feel like a found object still don't feel any clearer so with the exception of really the opening and ending scene that are clearly scripted to give us an excuse as to where all of this footage came from almost everything in between it i mean i would just throw my arms up in the air i can't make a claim i don't know what's real and what isn't even when guns are going off i mean that element of it feels just as raw in 2022 as it must have felt in 2011. I I feel like we don't have, you know, new eyes to look at this film and go, okay, you know, we're more familiar with digital workflows. I see what they were doing here. I see how this all got put together. There's only doubt (laughs) over almost every scene in this film, you know. The mini DV doesn't make it any clearer, but damn, it looks looks great. Yes. And I think that's also another reason why I love it, because it's such an artifact for us of when we were in film school shooting on mini DV, you know, and that, that really kind of nasty, you know, early digital uh, grime that just like washes over every shot of this film. I mean, it's, it's gross and it's gross in a way where it's, it's, it's got moments I think of like tremendous like beauty for mm-hmm. what it is and, and for the tone of, of the film. And like, to your point, Ryan, uh, you know, I think partly the reason why it feels that way and why they were able to maintain that compared to so many other like found footage films is because, you know, so many of those other like quote, you know, found footage horror films, like they still have like a crew of like 70 people like standing around, you know, right. and in this case, like, you know, Damon Russell was the only guy on that crew, like running around with them in the streets. You know, he said like, we wouldn't have been able to do this people wouldn't have been who they were for us 
if we had a large crew. So, so part of that really is because it's just one guy jumping into a car and, and, and fleeing the scene of a drive-by shooting or, you know, experiencing so many of those strange moments that, that you're describing because most of them actually did happen. And, and to your point about the, the gunfire, uh, I discovered in an interview with them that in many cases they actually were firing real guns, obviously not I have no doubt to kill people, but they said, you know, this area is so bad. There's so many gunshots that like cops don't show up for, for just a report of shots fired unless there's like a body on the ground. So they were like, we knew we could get away with in a couple cases, like just firing guns into the air and then quickly like getting the hell out of there, you know, again, jumping into a car and like speeding off. So, yeah, I mean, those gunshots, the way that the camera, the on camera mic reacts to the gunshots in the film was one of those things that still just kept making it feel so real. It's as if the levels in the camera are trying to quickly adjust for the the radical shift in volume. So there are moments when they're firing guns that then when they try to speak, you can't even hear it because the camera mic is like trying to keep up with everyone. And I feel like in a normal found footage film, there's a more active sound design. Those types of things are trying to be erased. But if you had actually found footage and had found a camera with just an onboard mic, that's what it would sound like. So again, when they're firing guns in the airs, it sounds real because that's how it would sound if it was just one guy with a camera capturing all of it. Yeah. And because they're real guns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, uh, in, in one sense, both of these films are, I guess, conventional hood films in the sense that they're the kind of films that link you know, back to the great gangster movies of Hollywood, right? You know, the sort of like the ethnic gangsters of the pre-code era, right? Uh, and the fun in watching, you know, someone who's gotten a raw deal uh, in life, uh, living their life and see what happens. But in that sense, they're they're both like films about characters who are trapped, right? And that's so often what, you know, a, a tale from the hood is, is all about, right? This extremely harsh uh, environment. And that's, of course, one thing that these films strongly have in common. Of course, the interesting thing being the, the formal approach is totally different, right? Uh, and it's a, it's a funny kind of thing, too, because... Nick Gomez's first film, Laws of Gravity, uh, with Edie Falco and Peter Green, which is like a, you know, kind of a, a street toughs kind of movie where, mm -hmm. you know, a bunch of people just like insult each other and, and harass each other and sell guns or whatever. Um, it is like going so aggressive towards like a, a faux cinema verite. It's like shaky, long takes, like it's really aggro. And then... New Jersey Drive is so composed, yeah. you know? And I was thinking, like, Laws of Gravity has so much in common visually with Snow on the Bluff, and yet New Jersey Drive doesn't at all. And I think it's maybe an obvious sort of filmmaker tendency to go, well, I did one thing last time, I'll do something else this time. But it works to such great effect here, because I'm thinking, again, in capturing that 
oppressive nature uh, of these situations. Like when the film opens, we get these just absolutely menacing shots of the Newark police, like waiting in ambush uh, for these guys cruising in a stolen car. But uh, it's not handheld verite. It's like perfectly composed with like rich, dark colors. Like it's beautiful, but we still get, yeah, that sense of the police looming over the hill, ready to strike at any moment. And the constant presence of the police in both films obviously speaks for itself. I mean, it's something I saw in in public housing when I saw the Wiseman film, especially when you're dealing with like projects, like people are harassed all day. They don't get to live the same lives that that we get to live, right? There are different rules uh, in place. And, and again, I think all of that uh, connects these films, you know, very clearly, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why I think the formal approach of New Jersey Drive is so interesting because as opposed to so many films about the streets where the goal is to shoot frantic handheld to evoke this feeling of we're there, we're, we're running alongside them. Like, this is what it feels like. Now you know how it feels to be on the streets with these people. Instead, it takes the approach of like The Wire, where it's, it's almost classical in its compositions and its camera movement. It's very often on dollies, on tripods. Everything is very composed and very carefully lit. As you said, there are all these insane moments of low light, deep shadows, people in silhouettes. It almost gives some of these scenes a gothic quality to it. But because of that, I feel like because of that distance, it's almost a little easier to engage with it maybe in a more meaningful way as opposed to just, wow, I really feel like I'm there. Now, of course, on the flip side, Snow on the Bluff goes so far in its feeling of you're here because, again, the artifice is completely stripped away. We have a camera with one man, no crew, like (laughs) just absolutely nothing distancing us from the feeling of walking on the streets with these people. so yeah, I found their their approaches so different, and yet somehow I felt I was able to engage with the films in a similar way because of their design. Yeah, to that like your point even about that kind of gritty realism that that you find in a lot of these films that they they strive for. Like the problem is especially that like once you see Snow on the Bluff, it really like ruins all that shit forever. You know because you're like yeah. man, I've seen Snow on the Bluff. This ain't shit. Like, I'm sorry. It is a film that is in its own way. I mean, you kind of use this, this terminology, Marsh. Um, it's, it's suffocating. It's suffocating because of the limited perspective that you have. And it's interesting to kind of refer to it as limited perspective when like you're, you're really privileged to a perspective that we don't often get. I mean, you are, you are taking part in crimes, you know, you are, you are, uh, you know, side by side with people who are going through like tremendous, uh, amounts of like grief and pain over the loss of friends and loved ones, you know, like it is a very like invasive kind of experience at times, but you know, it's one that like, I think is, is something that once you kind of can breathe after it's, you know, again, nearly like what, like 80 minute running time. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fast movie too. It's like a mm-hmm. relentless movie that like, once you can like kind of breathe for it, I think you do step back and really see it as not just this kind of like 
gimmicky, um, you know, like, oh yeah, like it's going to be this really intense and, and violent roller coaster ride you're going to go on. Like it's a film that has a lot of, a lot of depth and a lot of like thematic material in it that, that like makes you look at the film as this statement, this critique of society and not just like what it's like to be in this particular area, not just what it's like to be in the bluff, but what it's like to be in America, you know, mm -hmm. what it's like to experience the, the brutalities of the system that we live in that even creates neighborhoods and communities that are so underserved and so allowed to fall through the cracks that, that these conditions are, you know, on a certain level, like as, as specific as they are to this, like universal indictments of capitalism, of policing, of all these things that you find even in, you know, a movie like New Jersey Drive or Boys in the Hood or, or some of the other more, I, I don't even want to call it this, but like, I would say like kind of more mainstream prestige kind of Hollywood produced hood films. Sure. I was also thinking about the beginning of New Jersey Drive, how it really draws a lot of attention to the news. And to the ongoing tensions between police and newer car thieves. Last night, 17-year-old Ronald Lambs was shot and critically wounded while sitting in a stolen car in Newark. The police statement claimed the officers were fired upon first after they ordered the youth to surrender. There have been reports the car belonged to a Newark policeman. Many residents in the area are convinced police shot Mr. Lambs out of revenge. No weapon has been found. In the way the news is sensationalizing this idea of the car theft capital of the world, and imagining how the audience for those news broadcasts, the white families at home that are watching these stories and then are thinking about how dramatic it is stealing a car, the drama of that, the sensation of that. Yeah, bro. Have you read the Chicago fucking Tribune, you know, in the last two years? <laughs> Jesus right, Christ. I mean, the same fear mongering yeah. and news manufactured like crime crisis is in overdrive right now, just as it was then, yeah. Right, but I was thinking about how this film, in the way it addresses that, it's so purposefully not treating the thefts of the cars as the drama or the sensation, but more, at times, almost a relaxing thing that seemingly happens without incident. It's just a natural course of events. People just roll up in a new car in a new scene. It's no big deal, you know? Yeah, and it's just like, oh, nice, we have this one now. And, oh, I'm going to leave this one behind. We're going to go and grab that one. But instead, of course, right, it's the looming threat of the villainous police officers. Like, that's the source of drama here. And I feel like that perspective shift is so key to how one is supposed to read New Jersey Drive. But I also think then that the violence and the quote-unquote drama of Snow on the Bluff is also kind of complicated because of how things do happen in a very matter-of-fact way. And the camera itself doesn't linger on things for the benefit of those audiences that would have been watching the news late at night about these car robberies and getting all worked up about it, you know? The drama is much more personal in this film, of course, as opposed to simply the fact that we have children, you know, sitting right next to a big pile of crack and razor blades or, you know, the gunfire going off inside of people's homes and cars. 
Yeah. Well, I think both films, you know, a testament to both films. And I think other like great films um, that deal with similar subject matter uh, is that they, they, they lack simple narratives, you know, mm-hmm. to that point. It's, it's not necessarily about good, good guys and bad guys, right? Uh, heroes and villains. It's, it's about choices that people are forced to make in impossible situations. I mean, I even saw a, an interview with Curtis Snow where he was saying, you know, my movie's not about bad people. A lot of this, you know, a lot of films and media that focus on this and crime in these areas, they, they like to focus on, you know, bad people doing bad things. And he's like, I'm trying to show you good people who are forced to do bad things because of the system that they live in, because of the lack of choices provided to them, you know? And I mean, I, I guess if there is a very clear cut villain in New Jersey Drive, it's this one sort of central uh, cop figure who, who really seems to, as they point out in the film, like enjoy this, you know, enjoy what he's doing. There's a lot of cops mm-hmm. in the film, uh, a lot of excessive force we see, but there's really this one guy that the film offers, you know, who, who, who really does kind of like revel in it. This, this really Roscoe, malicious yeah. guy. Yeah. Roscoe who kind of looks like Joe Piscopo. He's got yeah. like the mullet. He's wearing like the flashy jackets, you know? I mean, he is, he is a bad dude who is grinning at every encounter he has uh, of just like roughing these guys up, killing people, committing like awful acts of, of brutality. I mean, he is a very malicious fucking guy in this yeah. movie. He's doing all of this while just smiling and chewing gum in your face and then, you know, parking his car that has a kiss me, I'm Irish bumper sticker on it, you know? Yeah, the the film in in that sense and in sort of the way we're describing it makes me want to share this this bit I read in an interview uh, with Nick Gomez. And he was talking about how, you know, uh, in his experience, of course, the Newark police were were very bad, very bad and very corrupt. And he worked on the script with a journalist who broke a bunch of stories about the corrupt Newark Police Department. And Gomez said that the original conception of the script was uh, an, an American graffiti style 24 hours in the lives of the kids and cops from an omniscient perspective and like starting with all like the corrupt cop investigation stuff. And then the studio said, uh, menace to society just came out. You have to make it about the kids. And then, so then it shifted its focus even you know, more towards Jason and midget and and that whole thing. And instead of being omniscient, we get, yeah, Saul Stein as Roscoe as like the stand in of these, this corrupt unit of this corrupt police department. Um, So I thought that was interesting, you know, that it sort of started from an even more removed kind of place and then uh, moved to where it was because of, uh, yeah, sort of, studio demands you know? yeah as as a whole the film really felt to me i i hadn't seen new drive new jersey drive before um and and I, I i was really impressed by the film i i really really liked it but 
But I think the thing that really stuck out in my experience of like watching the whole film was that, yeah, as much as this is about, you know, this, this specific element that they were, you know, anchoring the film, uh, with, you know, the, 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 the car theft of this area and the cops, like this really is also, I think a, a really touching coming of age story that we get this sort of journey, a character, several characters take, you know, through these streets and, and how it affects them and, and how they, some of them grow and, and some don't grow, uh, because of this experience or they grow in different directions, you know, but it is, I thought at its, it's, it's most touching when we really do have the, the young men in this film sort of like grappling with what they want out of their lives, you know, and whether this is enough, whether the, the, the highs and lows of this, this, this game of like cops and robbers with the auto theft squad and Roscoe like is how they want to eke out their, their existence, you know? And, and, and those scenes I thought were really, really, really impressive to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like New Jersey drive is, is really like <laughs> kind of, yeah, existential and sort of like ephemeral, uh, in a way, obviously, that like Snow on the Bluff isn't, you know, because it's like we see Curtis selling drugs, struggling, right, trying to make money. But that's not the case for Jason, right, who's at the center of New Jersey Drive. He's a high school student and stealing cars for him is just like a way of life. It's like the subculture that he's in, you know, yeah. that's just what they do. What's so fascinating to me is that he's not like, oh, we're stealing cars and like selling them for money. He just likes riding with his friends, right? He has a very stifling home life. He has a very difficult public life being harassed by police or being in danger of gang violence, uh, which we also see break out at various points, right? So there, again, there's it's not just the police. There's other threats. They're his friends become his enemies, you know? Um, but his goals are kind of, yeah, he's just like a teenager, what do you mean goals? You know, he likes riding around with his friends, that peace and quiet. And so the way the film just kind of like slips in and out of these vignettes, it's like there really isn't even a plot. And I would say that about Snow on the Bluff as well. There really isn't a plot. There's emotional arcs and, and mm -hmm. we see time elapse, but uh, they both are just like vibes films vignettes you know like yeah i i would say you know to i agree with 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 so much of what you're saying but but i would say that i, I actually do find a lot of that same kind of existential depth in snow on the bluff sure particularly in the moments between you know the more shocking the more visceral acts of violence because we do get quite a few moments of curtis just sort of you know, also uh, meeting with his family and and hanging with his friends and and existing. I do agree, yeah, that that I think for Curtis, there's so much more emphasis on like making money and making a living. And you know, he talks about that. I'm I'm raising children and I've got people that I provide for. He makes that point several times. Like, hey, I do this 
so that we all can, 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 uh, you know, have a good life, whatever that's worth to us, you know, whatever that means for us in this place. But, you know, I think really some of the more electrifying moments for me in this film are when he's just sort of philosophizing oh, yeah. to the camera, you know, and, and particularly to, to that end where, you know, at a certain point he says, you know, hey, what is this, what is all this about? See, it's either, see, this how this shit go on the street. Either you gonna be the one doing it or it gonna get done to you. It got to have one of them way. But it had to got where it was on and off because I was doing art jobs and, you know, trying to goddamn see what the move gonna be. That shit went for me. And then I'm thinking in my head, it's so easy for me to just get up. You know what I mean? When a nigga see that gun, it can be fake and real. If you know how to handle it, man, the motherfucker gonna get up. Motherfucker don't wanna get shot. That's the scary thing in the world, a gun dead in your motherfucking face, the barrel part. And you don't know who that is on the other side of it. And I, I have to kind of hold on to that code in this place. Otherwise, I am just going to be a victim, you know? But I, but I do feel that same kind of dread that that he's grappling with, you know? And Ryan mentioned, I think, what, what some people refer to as one of the most, like, controversial uh, single scenes in the film, where at a certain point, he's taking care of his son, uh, where, you know, his, his, the, the, the mother of his child has, has asked him to, you know, basically like babysit for a week. She's going, you know, to, to visit friends and there's no one else who can take care of him. And he's like, Hey, this is not really good week for me. We know why, of course. <laughs> right. Uh, but, but, you know, he has his son, like, and he's basically like holding on to his son with one arm and with the other arm, he's like cutting up crack cocaine that he's going to be distributing and selling. And that particular scene really alarmed a lot of people when they saw it, especially because of the muddiness of what's real and what isn't real and the proximity of a child to a razor blade and drugs. I mean, it was a very like upsetting thing for a lot of people, but I actually thought that that scene is for me, one of the more like touching and beautiful moments of the film that really like in a single shot is a total indictment of what, life is like for so many people who are forced to do these things, to juggle these things, you know, raising children and trying to keep them fed and clothed and safe and having so, of, you know, so few other options for like how to take care of that child, to provide for mm -hmm. that child. Yeah, I can't remember if it was that specific scene. I believe it was when he makes mention of the fact just him growing up and his history and he has that line where he says I was born with dope in my system you know and I feel like there is a great deal of reflection in this film about inheriting this way of life and being trapped in it on a generational level I mean as you said him mentioning you either have things done to you or you're the ones doing it when you're living out here and I think the the moment that really struck me the most, and it does actually connect these films a little bit, is both films following a robbery have like a smash cut to a visit to grandma's house. And there's two like big grandmother scenes in both films. But I keep thinking about the scene in Snow on the Bluff when he visits his grandmother, and she has that really haunting line. Because there's nothing out in the street but trouble. 
and death. That's you. You're guaranteed of that. And I feel like that aura also pervades New Jersey Drive. Of course, we never know where death is. The specter of death are the police officers. They literally can show up at just a moment's notice without any sort of hint that they're on their way. I mean, one of the big early incidents in New Jersey Drive is this seemingly peaceful moment of the two of them driving this car. And from the atop a hill, the police open fire, blow out their tire, and then start shooting into the car from the top of the hill. You know, no warning at all. They're up there because it was a stolen police car. Well, it was the idea is that the car belonged to one of the police officers. It wasn't a squad car, which it was Roscoe's hot rod. It was like his Camaro. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I kept thinking about how, you know, we never know where death is. That's how it feels sometimes in New Jersey Drive when you're moving around the streets of Newark. We never know where death is. I mean, I think in both films, like, the flashing lights of the police do appear out of nowhere. And, of course, what's interesting is in Snow on the Bluff, they're, they're real. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, they're coming just as frequently as they are in New Jersey Drive, which is much more of a fiction, right? But oh, yeah. I think both films, yeah, at any point, those lights could go up in the mirror, right? And that's... In, in both films, that's when you run, you know? Or oh, in yeah. the case of New Jersey Drive drive yeah and we should say uh donald Faison has a has a wonderful scene where he uh you know pilots this great getaway uh from the police uh and they're just so happy and they're just like laughing and that's really when they come alive Especially a guy like Jason, who's so like, he's like the opposite of of Snow, you know? He's like all internal, all kind of like brooding. And obviously Snow is just like, yes, philosophizing, you know, all the time. Yeah, just (laughs) all coming out, you know? Yeah, he wears his heart in his sleep. I will say, yeah, both films have incredible chase sequences in them you know even just from a a purely like cinematic you know and and a purely just sort of like on an entertainment level like both of these films have really like heart pounding chase sequences and yeah you you pointed out quite well marsh the difference being that primarily in new jersey drive we we get just just excellent excellent well choreographed uh, stunt work and and car chase sequences and and it's still on the bluff. What I really think is amazing is you get this sort of like for those who grew up watching like reality TV like and and particularly like cops, you get the great like inverted cops foot chase sequence where it's like you know as if the cameraman of cops who's always desperately like chasing you know the the police officers as they're pursuing criminals. We get 
the the guys who've just committed a crime and, and like the cameraman desperately also trying to evade the police who are you know f- flashlights scanning the the bushes and the hedges and and whipping around garages and going through alleys and 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 knowing the like the the ramifications of if they are apprehended in those moments but yeah both of these films like just nail those chase sequences so well Mm-hmm. I will say I kept thinking about how there is one moment in Snow on the Bluff that I thought was incredible staging, but it was this moment that made me realize the artifice of like a particular sequence because it was so perfect, right? The rest of the film, violence invades it so naturally and so suddenly where it feels as though it could never have been planned. But there is one great nighttime sequence in in snow on the bluff where we have the night vision they're getting in the back of a car they have their assault rifles they're like ready for a raid and if you look way out in the background of the shot you know from the the back seat window you can see a pair of headlights turn on signaling that they're you know they're about to be followed and that was a moment of just actual mise-en-scene you know like that was that was one of the few moments in the film that felt as if it was planned choreographed and arranged in advance and i and i don't think that that's a problem but i was just thinking about how the rest of the film completely fooled me in that respect that i you know it cast out always but at least in that scene I knew that that was directed. That that well, was like yeah, it's the climax. I mean, they're <laughs> yeah. like, we got to end this film. <laughs> we have to stage something. Like Curtis Snow's life goes on, in you know, indefinitely, right? So like, you gotta gotta end this with something dramatic, you yeah, know. Right. But I yeah. love that though. How you can just like see those lights pop on. It's really nice. They do, you know. In a, I guess in a in in a similar way, they do try to. Uh, uh, sort of like structure a lot of these vignettes around like one particular, one particularly menacing force in Snow on the Bluff. You know, in, in New Jersey Drive, we've got Roscoe and we know, you know, Roscoe is really going to be the guy like hounding them throughout. But in Snow on the Bluff, we get this guy who's only referred to as White Hat. There's a guy in a white Kangle hat, uh, you know, some drug dealer that they robbed uh, early on in the film who keeps sort of popping up. You know, it's it's sort of like Curtis's white whale in that regard, yeah. right? Because he keeps yeah. just calling him White Hat. <laughs> Have you seen him? And and this is yeah, the 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 sort of like main antagonist, I guess. If if there is one in Snow on the Bluff, and he does kind of pop up in those key moments where they're trying to, I guess have some sort of progression to uh, all of these other uh, encounters of the film. Andy, you had mentioned how Curtis Snow feels like a natural performer at times. And I was thinking about how my favorite scene in New Jersey Drive is when the the kids like steal uh, a cop car and they drive it around and pull over a bunch of frat boys and oh, they God, shine yeah. the spotlight on them. And he, the man driving the stolen police car like does an extreme white man like affectation to his voice. All right, pal, pull it over. <laughs> pull it over. I see those beers there. Uh, no, don't try to throw them out now. It's too late. All right, guys. Put your motherfucking hands in the air. Get him in the air. Now, damn it, now! 
You driver, step away from the car, please. Step away from the car. Come on, come on, that's it. Come on out, come on out. Don't look at me. What are you looking at? Get your hands up now. You look like they from Happy Days. Okay, get out of the car. Come on, get those hands in the air. Reach for the sky, bucko. <laughs> oh, oh shit, these niggas <laughs> oh, oh, we got it, oh, yo, we got it. Hey, these hey, hey, put that fear down. Get those hands in the air now. Get them up. Up. You guys are in a whole heap of trouble. And I kept thinking about how funny it would have been to see Curtis Snow do the exact same thing oh to see God. him as this natural performer stealing a cop car and tricking a bunch of people like I would have loved to have hear, heard Curtis's like rendition of that like New Jersey white man voice yeah. that, that the guys do in, in New Jersey Drive yeah it's a hilarious scene too because like you know like all the white dudes are all wearing like basically like mismatched like letterman jackets you know and i think even one <laughs> yeah. of them refers to as like the cast of happy days they call them you know like yes yeah, it's like just yes. the, the whitest dorks they're imaginable. in a they're in a geo pickup <laughs> yeah 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 but i i, I to your, yeah to your point ryan if I, I believe if curtis snow had pulled them over they wouldn't have gotten off as easy as they did with uh <laughs> With the, the pranksters in New Jersey Drive, that's for sure. Yeah. I will say, you know, thinking about not getting off very easy when you encounter Curtis Snow, that opening scene of Snow on the Bluff is is really scary. The the way it ramps up when Curtis does rob um, these, these like students who are just like looking to score some dope on the streets of Atlanta. Because we, we haven't mentioned it, but how did this footage get found? You know, the idea is that these... White people were driving around on a trip and they wanted to score some dope on the streets of Atlanta and they were filming it. And Curtis uh, gets picked up. He says, hey, why don't you, you know, my house is around the corner. Like, let me in here. We'll, we'll just drive up there. He's going through the the numbers. He's going to cut him a deal. He's going to give him 50 bucks off on, on all the stuff that they want. Um, but when Curtis like pulls the gun and just like the way he does it, we should just use the audio clip. Oh, uh, so you so you want two eight ball and you want the two um what's his name, right? Well, yeah, ten rolls. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ten rolls, ten rolls. I can, I yeah. can yeah. try. Yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite. Okay, like this is where the footage came from because he steals this camera. Yeah, you know that's actually you know I gotta I gotta call it out because that's actually a uh, a scene that had been used by Dead Prez in their video for Hell Yeah, uh, which could have only been a handful of years earlier, but the music video uh, starts with you know, these, like, white people on vacation or whatever. Wait a minute, but I think we ought to have a hot dog. And then they get jacked and steal the camera. So uh, I'm not mm. saying they straight ripped it off, but maybe that was an influence, you know? Because sure. to me, I remember seeing that music video and being like, oh, shit, this rips or whatever. I think it's funny, too, because there, there's, there's quite a few jokes peppered throughout the film. Uh, I mean, like to, to be honest, like even Curtis Snow himself has said, like, 
I want this movie to make people cry. I want this movie to make people laugh. And I, I think that in spite, again, of all like the, the sort of really dark and, and shocking and, and very like depressing moments of the film, there is like a sense of humor that that in, injects itself in a lot of moments. And, and starting even with that, that like prologue, I guess you could say, the, the bookends for, for how the footage was found. Like, I think one of the jokes already is that these people are also like media professionals and it's part of like, right. you know, <laughs> part of the thing, like a slight on these sort of like dorky media idiots who are just like filming their lives and like, oh, filming a drug deal that they're, they're taking place in because they think it's, it's cool or it's cute. But then even like after that, when like he's like just sort of showing up in the neighborhood with the camera and they're sort of, you know, explaining like, hey, we're just going to roll on everything. One of the people, like one of his friends who looks at them and sees them with the camera says like, what is that? That looks stupid. Look at this camera. You look like a stupid idiot or something with the camera. And like a guy's like, yeah, it is kind of stupid. You know, it's like they're already kind of like making fun of this idea of like documenting your life, you know, and, and to that, to that, like, you know, on that like level, I really think it's like, yeah, Curtis is like hamming it up, you know, and, and he gets that this is kind of all a joke that this is a cosmic joke that he is now going to take part in because even when he's like screaming at the people in the car he's like yelling at them one point like keep rolling keep rolling this is what you want like let's i'll give you exactly what it is that you want i'm going to live up to your expectations in a way that's going to be so much more real than like what you even expected you know, mm-hmm. and there's a point when a when a guy drives by and asks him uh, if his video is going to be on YouTube, yeah, uh, as well. Yeah, and he screams back, "No!" Nah. Yeah. <laughs> he's got greater ambitions. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, he's insanely charismatic, you know, and he's insanely smart, and he's ins- he's insanely funny. I mean, I think there's a reason this film became a cult object, and and one that uh, you know has influenced rappers and other people you know who are like obsessed with this movie uh is because curtis is a great character you know and he knows it Mm -hmm. uh and that's also yeah that's part of the game as well but i mean a lot of the stuff he says is very sympathetic very intelligent right I, i kept thinking about in his like confessional you know there's like one very almost reality tv moment where he's just like talking to to damon off camera about his life and he says even about drugs he goes well drugs kill you but they help you out Mm -hmm. and he means that in a multitude of ways right he means that as selling also using taking away some of the pain of the world you know and he has this very like thoughtful reflection on the entire situation. And again, it goes back to that point about like, you know, this not being a movie about good guys and bad guys, you know, he, he really makes the point that, that these are good people facing awful situations. And, and yeah, I think that, I think that that comes through so much that, that it, it also like is what helped this film like get 
more distribution because I'm not sure if you guys are aware, but, but, you know, once this film was starting to make the rounds and, and people were starting to get their eyes on it, uh, one of the people who did, uh, is Michael K. Williams, the guy who plays uh, a character in the great series that Ryan's already mentioned, The Wire. He plays Omar. And I saw, uh, an interview with him, uh, with Michael K. Williams talking about it, you know, and he was like, look, when I saw this guy, Curtis Snow, like I saw so much of myself and I saw so much of the character that basically like helped me out of my, uh, you know, impossibly violent and, and, you know, drug addicted, uh, life, uh, you know, by becoming Omar, by getting this role in the wire that, that he was like, I got to jump on board and help. And, and he started, you know, helping executive produce the film and, and, and get the film out there. But like, it was so clear in watching those interviews with, with Michael K. Williams, just reflecting on this film that he was just like, man, like this is a thing that people need to see, you know, and they need to see it because of those things because of like what it has to say and what Curtis has to say like this is a film that that ultimately can help people I mean you know I think one of the great moments of the film that lays it all out is uh when him and his buddies are like getting ready to to do a little commando raid towards the end and they've got their <laughs> gloves on and they're loading up all the ammunition uh Curtis goes Mert my baby mom I'm a motherfucking single parent, nigga. <laughs> and they're yeah. like getting ready to go do a drive-by, yeah. you know? And again, those those contrasts and those realities that are being brought into it um, really do, yeah, you know, take it to another level for sure. There's something similar happening in New Jersey Drive, too, in the way it reorients the way you might understand some of these situations. I love how, you know... Again, thinking about the audience that's watching these news broadcasts would think of these young people stealing cars as it all coming from like this space of anger that they're like lashing out against the world, stealing cars because they don't care. They don't care about their fellow man. They, they don't value, you know, pe people's possessions, things like that. And the film goes to such great lengths not only to show how the actual act of being in another person's car and being on the road sometimes feels like a safe space for them, like this moment of peace where they do have the opportunity to become introspective and reflective, as you had said, Andy, that like existential Tulane blacktop quality. But there's also even little details that again remind me of Tulane blacktop, the, the actual obsession over the cars themselves, such as Jason sitting at home flipping through a car magazine. You know, even when he's back at home, he's he's thinking about the road. He's thinking about the cars. He's thinking about new places he can explore. And it never seems to come again from the space of like, oh, yeah, I'm out to get them. You know, I'm angry at the world. But instead, it's positioned as, as you said, Marsh, a subculture of sorts. It's just all given this weight that I feel like normally never would be given, uh, whether that's in television news representation, but then also even conventional Hollywood films from the time. 
And if you want to read a pretty racist uh, response to this film, you can read Ebert's review. <laughs> you beat me to it. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a really wild special agent Ebert dispatch on oh, New boy. Drive. Yeah. What does Roger have to say? Well, I, won't, I don't even want to dignify it with, uh, with attention, but it's just, it, you know, it's sort of like <clears throat> the cops are portrayed very badly, but these kids are knuckleheads, you know? Oh, and God. It's, it's, yeah, it's not great. Great, okay, you know? boomer. Yeah. Yeah, he has a line where he says, Oh man, yeah, I have to just I have to quote it, you know. Um he's like, you know, Roscoe and some other cops beat suspects and lay traps for them. On the other hand, the young thieves <laughs> place lives in danger with their incredibly reckless driving. And you're really kind of asking for it when you steal a squad car. Oh my like, Jesus Whoa, Christ. Bro, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, Blue yeah. Lives Matter to yeah. Roger Ebert, yeah. apparently. <laughs> yeah, because that's not the feeling I, I get from the movie at all. No. You know, obviously. No. And but again, I wanted to go back to the car thing, too, before we, 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 uh, we, we went too far down the road here into some other territory. But, but yeah, you know, and again, just like sort of extrapolating this, this comparison to, to Tulane Blacktop, and I think some of the other great like road movies of that era, the late sixties and the seventies, particularly, you know, the car in, in so many of those movies often represents the idea of escape, of freedom, of being able to simply like go where you wanted to in this rotten decaying America, you know, the America of, of Vietnam, of police brutality during the, you know, I mean forever really, but you know, highlighted by so much, so much of the upheaval, love you know the civil rights movement you know the anti-vietnam protests you know the car was the, the the means for you to flee your 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 prison you know mm -hmm. whatever that might be wherever it it may be and so you know this film fits very well i think in that same mold you know because as you pointed out like there is one man there, there's a lot of great moments but there's, like, there's one moment where they're in like a convertible and they're cruising yeah. at night and yeah like it is just glorious you know and it's this 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 fleeting very fleeting moment in the film where you really feel like they could just keep going you know they really could mm -hmm. just keep going and, and leave all of this behind. And like, that's what it's really about. That's what it represents. But like, as you've mentioned, like at, at almost every point in the film where they have been like kind of cruising and, and starting to feel some sort of, some sort of liberation, like Roscoe shows up, you know, they, they get boxed in suddenly by a, a bunch of squad cars cut off, just entrapped, literally entrapped by right. these forces that want to take the cars away from them, ground them, keep them locked down, you know, in this in this brutal, brutal life. Interesting part about that night ride cruising sequence, which I think is a standout in the film. I read that they had a lot of rain in the production of this movie. They had rain 24 of 39 shooting days. Oh, my God. And so wow. Gomez kept pleading to let, give him extra days to shoot. And the studio wanted him to cut it 
before they decided what to shoot. And that's ultimately what ended up happening was that they shot a bunch of stuff, but they got rained out a bunch. They cut as much as they could and then went back and shot some stuff. And in those reshoots, they were on a lunch break at midnight and they were like, let's go for a drive spontaneously, Curtis Snow style, like one two person crew, get in the car with the actors, no lights. That's why it's all silhouetted. The cinematographer was shitting his pants. You know, you won't (laughs) be able to see it, that kind of thing. And they just did it for fun on their lunch break. And that's one of the, the great sequences of the film, a spontaneous, yeah. beautiful moment. I mean, and that's probably particularly why it feels yes. that way because of that. And it's like a di- sort of different style than the rest of the movie, which is much more composed. It reminds me of the great moment in Halloween when uh, they smoke weed uh, and drive around the block with the camera in the back seat of the car, which is a scene yeah. that Deborah Hill just invented on the spot, and they went around and just drove around and got it. And that's also why that scene doesn't look like any other scenes in Halloween. Movie magic, baby. Yeah, yeah. that doesn't surprise me hearing that because that scene really did strike a chord with me too. Like it, it's very lyrical in a way that while I again said the film was a bit impressionistic and stylish, like that scene sticks out as being noticeably different. I also think the fact that that sequence ends with a fade to black, sort of encapsulating it in this moment of safety. Like, th- that's not a moment in their lives that was disturbed by an immediate, immediate follow-up of a cop coming around the corner. In the film, we're given that moment isolated to hold on to. We don't have to have it tainted by other elements of the outside world. Another thing uh, that I think, again, like uh, both of these films do do very well to their their um, their explorations of life uh, in these areas is is really again focus on how crime doesn't you know crime isn't the result of just like supervillains you know it isn't the the result of like these sort of like evil masterminds that that mm-hmm. crime is a is a byproduct of institutionalization of people institutional violence that that again like to curtis's point like puts you in a situation where you have to choose either i participate in it uh i i fight i defend myself i i i try to position myself to not simply be a victim you know in new jersey drive we get that you know where we also get a glimpse into uh, this sort of like youth home, right? The, the like juvenile hall or whatever. And, and also like the judge and, and, and what the judge says to him and this sort of mockery of the courtroom with that, the, the line that's up like, uh, you know, on the wall behind the judge, justice is truth in action. This, this like, <laughs> this brutal, like cosmic joke, again, this like sick joke for people who are, again, products of like, you know, a, a system that 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 builds the conditions for these things to happen, and in in Snow on the Bluff, there's again it's, it's I think really like intelligent moment where there's just this this I mean there's a lot of that you see in in Snow on the Bluff, but one of the highlights for me is is in a a, a scene when they go to 
like they're in the the parking lot of some bar. They're all like kind of hanging out, and there's some guy that's just talking to the camera, like just some guy on the street that's being interviewed by them. And you know, he's this older man that's saying, you know, I've been in jail 25 years out of my life. I'm 54. All right, I went to jail when I was 17 years old. I'm 54 now. Add that up. And talking about that again, the cycles of of what this. The, these institutions have done to him. And then, you know, we're back with Curtis and then like the cherry on top is we get this like cut later on to this guy in the parking lot just suddenly being rousted by cops and thrown in the back of a squad car. This guy who just talked about how he spent 27 years of his life, he cannot find a way to stay out, that he's just being sort of preyed upon by a system that that simply seems to want to keep this guy in jail. Like, I think both of these films, again, deal with it in their own ways, you know? In Stone of the Bluff, it's like this almost like, it's just like the darkest, 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 sickest kind of joke you can imagine, you know? This guy is just like, well, I'm hopeful, and then bam, he's just suddenly being thrown into the back of a squad car for seemingly nothing, you know? For just existing, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, something else I wanted, I just like have to mention yeah. as well, because I, you know, I'm, for those who don't know, for our listeners who don't know, you know, we, we all have gaps in what we've seen and what we watch out there. And I have a very shameful gap uh, that I'm rectifying now very, very, very diligently. I'm, I'm going through the Sopranos for the very first time. And so, you know, off, off mic before, we were talking about how I've been watching Sopranos and I'm seeing all these people now everywhere, you know, people who are in Sopranos and, and really like noticing them now in movies. And I got to point out a, a Sopranos connection to this New Jersey story, but there's a sergeant at the police station who is... The father, the priest yeah. from The Sopranos. Wow. Yeah. Did it's you guys notice him in there? Not at the time. Yeah. So the sergeant who puts the sign puts the, on him. Yeah. yeah. When he's like doing intake when and he, he says he's mouths Char- off. He says he's Charles Manson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And he puts the, <laughs> puts the sign on him. That's the father. That's, uh, you know, Carmela's flirtatious oh priest friend from The Sopranos. I think he likes TCM too, right? He likes watching pictures. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. him and Carmela Bond over uh, a rented dvd of remains of the day (laughs) yeah where they 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 go real close to him forsaking his vows yeah but i was funny because then when i was thinking about i was wondering this was 95 i was like was this the priest's origin story you know did he have such a bad experience with the brutality of the police force and all these experiences (laughs) that he decided to to devote himself to the cloth you know to become a man of god and in new jersey you know I think so. I think it's believable. And I mean, there's also the fact that Nick Gomez himself directed the third episode of The Sopranos. Oh. So there's that literal connection there, too. That's right. Like so many 90s auteurs, he uh, he fell into a prestige television hole, mm-hmm. you know? And right. Michael K. Williams, executive producer of Snow on the Bluff, is in an episode of Sopranos. Oh. Yeah. Oh, holy shit. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. Damn. It was uh, Jackie Jr. When Jackie Jr.'s on the lamb, when he's hiding out, he yeah. goes to the projects and he pays Michael K. Williams to like let him stay, you know, and hide out in his apartment. So, my goodness. Yeah. See, this is why I'm watching The Sopranos because I'm really, 
this is a terrible, terrible node that I have uh, not, <laughs> yeah. you know, visited at all. It's not. It's a beautiful thing now that you're watching it. Yeah. You know? yeah. Even thinking about Nick Gomez doing some episodes of The Sopranos, the the daytime sequences have a little bit of a similar sheen in New Jersey Drive to some of the the daytime stuff in The Sopranos, which I really liked. And it doesn't surprise me to know that they got rained out a bunch because like a lot of films I really love, New Jersey Drive seems to embrace just real weather. I like how the film feels quite cold at times, um, but the sun is still out. There's like a lot of really nice either early or late winter light because, again, they're still able to drive with the top down with the convertible. Um, but, yeah, it does rain, It but it really does capture a feeling of what the air might taste like, you know, I feel like I could taste the air when the windows were down in New Jersey drive. And at the same time, I felt as though I could sometimes taste the humidity of Atlanta. Ooh, yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's again, like we described, you know, we've got these moments of night vision, digital photography, everything's super green. And then other, at other points, just extremely low light. The, the footage is like so crushed and there's so many artifacts. It's there's just very little actually exposing it. But then every now and then we have like a scene where they're driving around and you can see like the summer sun setting and it's golden and it's just like burning through the camera you know at, at points overexposed but also the giving really nice edge light to them as they're driving around and there is something oddly beautiful about the digital quality of snow on the bluff that i thought was in like an interesting juxtaposition obviously with some of the things that were were happening on screen i mean even they even take night vision in in directions i've never really seen oh, utilized yeah. before there's a like, moment at that police scene when it gets like very smeary and impressionistic mm -hmm. and out of focus like that looks like chungking express yeah it really mm -hmm. does it really fucking yeah. does <laughs> holy shit and again like Chris Doyle eat your heart out yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and again like I, I think like both of these films do a really good job of like establishing a sense of space and place and just simply like living in these areas. And, and I don't even just mean like, uh, uh, you know, with the dramatic moments, but, but so much of that in both of these films to me comes through again, in like the spaces between and, and especially in snow on the bluff, when we do have the moments of just people just like hanging out, you know, and just spending an afternoon together or spending an evening together. And I got to point out Marsh, a, a moment that I think must have warmed your heart, which is basically when uh, oh my they, God, dude. for, for, you know, a way to sort of, you know, take the edge off of a, of a tough day. They, uh, they do a little bowling of their own. That's right. They roll these bowling balls down a huge hill and see if it could cross the intersection. And there's a couple <laughs> false starts, but then they get one across and it is a, it is a joyous moment, Dude. you know? Let him go. He's going. Come on the curb. Come on the curb. He's going across the He's going across the Yeah. 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 Over the hump. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that's just like the total like verite stuff that, yeah, even in parts reminds me of uh, Hale County this morning, this evening, a very great film that's like a home video kind of snapshot type of thing. And man, that that bowling bit is... uh, yeah, I guess that's like one of one of the sort of found footage strategies we haven't explicitly talked about is there is this kind of like snippets sort of motif that we get throughout more at the beginning to kind of initiate the viewer into it. Uh, but there's transitions of, yeah, just brief little shots, these little snippets that really do feel like just random documentary footage. And uh, the way, again, I mean, I, th- I really do think the film is a feat of editing, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And oh, if yeah. those tapes in the movie are to be believed, that's a lot of tapes. One of them was labeled 42. Oh, wow. When wow. I shot my feature in 2009, we shot 33 mini DV tapes. So, like, they're... And that was a long ass movie. So. Well, and and again, you know, it's it's part of what makes this so, um, you know, uh, to to like what Ryan had said earlier. It's like so hard to sort of pick pick apart like what was staged for this and what wasn't because I don't want to. Right? I mean, you shouldn't because there is a lot of footage that was like captured by him so like if you look at like cinematographers in it like damon russell's in in there and there's this other guy pancho perez he's one of the guys and he's one of the guys and and like curtis said like i brought a bunch of footage already to uh to damon russell you know and that damon russell kind of came in and then helped shape it and then we shot some of the other stuff but but i i gotta believe that there are a lot of those snippets as you described them that were just curtis just shooting with his friends you know with damon russell not even on the set not even present you know that he sort of you know wove uh, weaved into the 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 more narrative elements of of Curtis's journey. Yeah. Isn't Curtis still making films? Isn't he like shooting stuff on the streets on a regular well, basis? I hope so. Well, I mean like it's I mean he's he had a very he's had a very colorful uh life, you know, obviously like before, during and and after this. They did end up making an unofficial sequel yeah. to the With film. Snoop Dogg, right? That, yeah, Snoop Dogg had a president, but they ended up getting sued by Damon Russell uh, and his like whatever uh. production company because they did it without Damon Russell. And and from what I understand in reading interviews and stuff, Curtis and Damon didn't really get along super well. I, I, there was some Ugh, man <laughs> through the experience of making the film, like. You know, in interviews I saw with Curtis, he's basically said like, hey, we were close and we got this thing done, but like, I can't stand that guy or whatever. So I have to imagine, you know, like there were probably a lot of creative differences that happened because Damon was wanting to shape this into something maybe a little bit more narrative and, and Curtis was so devoted to the, the, the sort of disjointed realness of it all. Like, I mean, that's what he really mm-hmm. wanted, you know, these, these sorts of snippets and moments and, you know, whatever. I mean, I couldn't really find a lot about that other than that they did kind of have, I don't want to necessarily just go out and say a falling out, but clearly they didn't work together again, even after this film's success. Another little element that I thought was really interesting for, for Curtis in speaking about his life after this was, 
like as I mentioned, this film was a was an early part of Netflix's like streaming platform, its growing streaming platform and its success. And Curtis, I did see an interview. Uh, he started to talk about how how Netflix like he really didn't like Netflix and and apparently like they wanted to make other things and put them on Netflix but he was talking about how you know Netflix started to have all these rules about the kinds of movies that they would show and and things that they would want and and clearly like input that Netflix wanted to have in in you know the kinds of material that they would get so so yeah. Curtis was like we said fuck that and and they created he tried to create i don't know its success but his own streaming platform as he said you know we couldn't get in their shop we couldn't get our products in their store so we just created you know we just opened up our own shop next door and they created something called trap flicks and he said we will take anything you know we said to people just bring us whatever you want now i didn't really look too deeply into you know <laughs> how successful traveling flicks became but again speaking to his entrepreneurial spirit like in 2012 2013 this guy like saw the potential for streaming services at a very early point in their existence you know i mean the guy is a very 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 smart cat in a filmmaker magazine interview with uh, Curtis and Russell, which Curtis gave in prison until the phone cut out, uh, <laughs> he is asked by the interviewer if he has a favorite movie. And he cheekily responds, Snow on the Bluff, and then is pressed a, a little more. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know what he, his first knee-jerk response is? Oh, yes. A gauntlet classic. He says, one of my favorites is Shada's. It has Bob Marley's son, <laughs> Damian Marley. It's similar, and they're running around doing some crazy stuff, uh, some old school stuff. But then he's actually pressed even he's pressed even further because Damon Russell asks, uh, pipes up and says that they bonded over a night at the Roxbury. <laughs> and then Curtis Snow says, "Oh, we're talking about my real favorite movies." Yeah. And then he says, "Will Ferrell and Ben Stiller." And then also 48 Hours and Eddie Murphy. And, and another movie that I think is, is Three great. Three the Hard Way. Well, Three the Hard Way, but also Sidney Poitier's Let's Do It Again. Oh, I've yeah. never seen that. If you recall in our text, in our group text, when we were talking about this week's topic, and I, I talked to Ryan about this. Uh, oh, yeah, it was just me and Ryan. I was like, you haven't seen Snow on the Bluff? It's what Shada's wishes it could be. <laughs> It's true. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's so true, yeah. This is the real Shadas for sure. Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, I got to say, it was a very fun week. I had a great time uh, revisiting these films, these very interesting and uh, very deep movies on many levels, visually and uh, and otherwise. Yeah, well, I you know I extend my thanks again for I- encouraging me as always to seek out more hood films because I do think it is like a really remarkable genre, particularly in the United States. I know we had mentioned that the 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 genre itself expands well beyond the confines of even specifically it's a just lot like, of cities out there. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's a it's it's a really wide ranging uh, um, genre. But I know you when you pitched the topic, you had listed off the fact that you watched three really interesting hood films. And here we are bringing two more that you like, and we know you like, 
Uh, but I still have to ask, I mean, are there any others that people should check out or even me that I should check out that I haven't seen? What do you, what do you love? Well, uh, so, so many, oh, I mean, boy, these yeah. are, these are the movies, yeah. you know, that, that guys in my and Andy's age, you know, when we were growing up, these movies were everywhere and these movies were super formative. Um, but I want to highlight two that I've come to really, really appreciate in the last few years as I've taught my heist films course. Uh, and that is uh, two of the great contributions to the 90s cycle. Uh, F. Gary Gray's Set It Off and the Hughes Brothers' Dead Presidents. Uh, two just stunning contributions to the cinematic robbery canon and they're different vibes, but, uh, they bring a lot of style and a lot of energy, uh, to the heist film and, uh, really kind of, you know, it, it, to, to me revitalized the genre even before oceans did, you know, cause there was a dark period for the heist film in the 1980s, <laughs> but, uh, Set it off, dead presidents. I mean, they're classics. You know, they're not they're not hidden gems, but uh, great movies uh, that I would recommend to to anyone. And uh, as I keep rewatching them, they get better. Absolutely, yeah. I also want to just tell people to go and see Deep Cover. I feel like that was one of my favorites. Oh that, yeah, that I watched on the porch with you. You know, both of us experiencing that movie for the first time, well before it's you know, oh, recent yeah. restoration, which I still haven't checked out, excited for, but that felt like we really found something pretty cool. You we know? were, yeah, we were in early on the deep cover train. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I would recommend uh, any movie Bill Duke directed. Uh, yes. Any of them, pick one. The God. Well, it was, uh, it was my uh, turn to pick this week, but next week it is, of course, Andy's turn. What do you got? That's right. It's my turn, isn't it? Um, well, you know, last uh, week, uh, I sort of was just killing time. My girlfriend was out of town, so I knew I had uh, the the space and freedom to just, like, watch some garbage, because she's watching Sopranos with me, so I, you know, I couldn't get ahead of her, you know, I had to, we had to stay level on that, um, and I, I watched a movie that I... I had sort of seen, I guess, when I was younger, but but didn't really remember it. So so I watched this movie called Gladiator uh, from the eighties. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> not no, not that Gladiator. No, no, the other Gladiator, uh, which is a really just sort of like just kind of junky movie with Cuba Gooding Jr. Uh, about an an underground Chicago boxing oh, league. Oh, I've seen this movie. Yeah, you've probably yeah, seen it. You yeah, probably seen it. Yeah. some would perhaps call it a hood film because yeah. it's about the, the you know the west side of Chicago and a, a rough area mm. and how this underground boxing association is potentially an escape for these for these young men. Um, but this is not a really good movie. I didn't think it was a great movie, you know. But it is about one of my favorite sports, and that would be boxing the combat sport uh i'm a big fan of boxing in general I'm, I'm really sad to see the state of boxing in the current day and age but i do think it is uh, uh ripe for many 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 
great cinematic treatments. And there was a pretty good boxing match last week, a heavyweight title fight between the great Ukrainian uh, Alexander Yusek and Anthony Joshua Yusek won. Uh, and the, the, you know, I don't want to get too dorky here, but, but there may be hope for a, a, a unified, a completely undisputed heavyweight champion if Yusek can take on Tyson Fury, the Gypsy King. So hopefully we'll see that. But, but until that fight, I'd like you guys to bring me to bring me some some great boxing matches to 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 feed my my uh, my itch, to scratch my itch here for, for it. so next week bring me some boxing movies let's take a look at the sweet science on screen eric marsh's punch out next week <laughs> let's do it <laughs> knock me out boys as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send an email to Lonely Marsh's Mailbag. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. At Come on, guys. <laughs> at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. I used to work at Burger King, but after taking orders, I used to take the path to let and quarters cross the waters. I guess the house is quiet now. And up and down the block, you don't see anybody anymore. It's almost like we were never there. We were just trying to make our mark in the world. Find something we call our own. And if I've changed it all, it's only because I've seen too much. It's only because my life can't go back the way it was. Even if I wanted to, it's no going Yeah, I'm looking at your ad. Let's get in the paper that say y'all do video editing. Uh-huh. Do y'all do movies too? Yeah, I gotta move. I'm talking about some real deal shit. My name Curtis Snow. I'm from the bluff. I got some shit. I got a whole lot of tapes, man, of some real good shit that I know the world need to see, man. Real talk. Alright, I can make it there in 20 minutes. Alright.